Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. I hope that you are all well. I hope that there's a little bit of beauty and a little bit of magic wherever you are in the world today, whatever you're doing and whoever you're with. One of the most wonderful things I think that we can hope for in this lifetime is that we can find a state of peace and a state of serenity. You know, one of the greatest battles, I think, of mankind is to reach that state of equilibrium where we find an inner peace. And I think once we find that inner peace, we can actually affect the people around us and also worldwide because we cannot achieve anything from the outside in. It always has to be from the inside out. And I think that's one of the secrets um, of life. And we simply miss it because it's so simple. We're always trying to make things a little more complicated than they should be. But I think what, if anything, this whole situation that's occurred worldwide through centuries is that the answer really does lie within us. And um, the lifelong question that is really on everyone's lips is that where is that sanctuary of peace? Where does it exist? And sometimes we spend a lifetime searching for it. And hopefully through inner work, acceptance of ourselves and truly loving ourselves and being gentle with ourselves because really it is sometimes a very tough journey this journey called life we can find unbelievable peace and we can always retire to that sanctuary no matter where we are in the world now i am absolutely delighted and really honoured to have my special guest today, who is Madhav Sharma. He is one of Britain's well-known television, radio and theatre actors who has acted with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre and in the West End in leading roles. Madhav has also appeared in numerous television programmes ranging from serials such as EastEnders, Holby City, Casualty, and Endeavour, to many other well-known dramas and award-winning films, such as East is East. His famed radio work includes the audiobook of Kim by Rudyard Kipling, 
in which he plays all the characters and which was voted by the readers of the Boston Globe for Audio Book of the Year. His success spans over several decades and is really quite admirable. Throughout his career, Madhav has intermittently also directed, produced and initiated many, many different new projects. His personal journey, though, of his life is also a fascinating one, along with his intriguing family members who range from writers and authors to so much more. It's very interesting, I have to say. And some of that he will share with us today. Welcome, dear Madhav. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you? What a beautiful day it is here. Yes, yes, yes. Is it very sunny where you are, Madhav? Yes, it is. Suffolk is looking lovely. My garden's looking gorgeous. It's really nice day. It feels like a spring day. Oh, how beautiful a spring day. There's nothing quite like it, is there? When no. you see those buds and um, the chirping of the birds, I have to say, there's a certain joy in one's heart. Absolutely. So... I just want to say to you, really, my dad, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really, really an honour to have you here. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Now, you have done so much in your career and in your life that I find it fascinating. I, I'm fascinated also with your writing because I know you write also. And there's so many things that you do. But for, you know, our listeners... Tell us a little, about, a little bit about where it all started, you know, from your early life, because I know that's quite um, an incredible journey. Well, it's very hard to know where to begin, because my, my life is a bit like a Bollywood, Bollywood B-movie. It's full <laughs> of so much incident and so many different things happening and so dramatic and so varied that I myself am quite surprised by it now and again. And it's not due to any pre-planning or anything like that. I've just gone with whatever my heart has told me to do. Sometimes I've made mistakes and sometimes uh, things have worked out for me because at the end of the day, outrageous fortune has been my best friend. Mm. It's very hard to explain this because, you see, my mother died soon after I was born. And so I was... Uh, really brought up by my grandfather, my mother's father, and my great aunt. And um, so, that, so I had to travel over a thousand miles from Calcutta, which is where I was born, to Bangalore, which is where my grandfather lived. And um, I was brought up there as a, as a boy, but I was always a sort of a loner. There was something odd about me that nobody quite knew. I was a precocious, uh, cheeky, uh, probably a pain in the ass, to be honest. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, but uh, that's the way I was. I, was. I had two passions in life in those days. It was cricket and being a surgeon. And then I read uh, uh, The Healing Knife by George Sava and decided I couldn't be a surgeon because it meant cutting up frogs and things. And I just couldn't do it. Quite. <laughs> so, and cricket was all right till I had an accident playing a game of cricket when I knocked the left elbow. And it's kind of 
So I kind of, you know, and literature, of course, has always been my, you know, living in another world seemed to me to be the answer to everything. I'd just go into my room and you know what Indian families are like. They're very into education, education, education. Yeah. Unfortunately, I had this photographic memory. So I just soaked things up. And I had an English master at one of the schools I went to. I went to many different schools. But the one I can remember is a Mr. Sharma, B.C.R. Sharma, who was my math, mathematics teacher. But he fostered my love of Shakespeare in a curious way. Mm. And I remember that the very first Shakespeare thing I ever, ever recited to myself out loud was all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. And from then on, I don't know what it was. It was like an addiction. And I remember when I was a young boy walking from my grandfather's house all the way to the Indian Institute for World Culture, where there was an Englishman about to give a, a concert of South Indian Carnatic music. Mm -hmm. Now, this intrigued me no end. So I sat there and listened to it, and I thought it was just fantastic. Uh, and at the end of the concert, the man said, um, you know, I was introduced to him and he said, uh, and what are you interested in, young man? And I said, oh, um, Shakespeare, sir, rather diffidently. Mm. And he laughed and said, well, why not? I mean, here I am, an Englishman singing Carnatic music here in Bangalore. Why shouldn't you be doing Shakespeare at Stratford-upon-Avon in England? And I walked home with a spring in my step, and I can't describe the feeling of ecstasy I felt. It was just like somebody had opened a door, and anything was possible. And I rushed home and decided then and there that I would go to England and that I would do Shakespeare. How beautiful, my goodness. And I was a very young lad at the time, so mm. I didn't even know what I was saying, but, um, but that's what happened. How old were you? Oh, at that stage, I was only about, I was less than 12, I think. I must have oh been my 10, goodness. I, I went to university at 12 and a half, 13 and a half, actually. I took a year off. Um, so it's all kind of very weird, really. I was a bit of a, you know, I, had, I was this freak. I, today, there's probably some name for the condition, but I could, you know, you could give me a whole set of numbers and multiply them by another whole set of numbers, and I'd give you the answer. I mean, I never knew how I did it. I have no idea today how to do it. But I had these powers. I had this photographic memory. You know, I mean, mm. uh, as I keep saying in my one-man show, uh, you know, I can still remember things from my Mellor's textbook of inorganic chemistry, you know, that hydrogen peroxide is an interesting liquid discovered by Thenard in 1818 for the action of cold dilute sulfuric acid on hydrated barium peroxide. What it means, I haven't a clue. <laughs> but you remember it, that's the well, point. Yes, this meant I, mean, I kept passing exams and I was a bit of a, considered a child prodigy and I only had to read a poem once and I knew it. And I'd read my Shakespeare and I'd recite it, reams and reams of it. And it was kind of lovely. And um, I don't know, I must have been mad, I suppose. I don't know what I was. A genius, I, perhaps. I, I felt separated from everything else. And I, all I did was think about myself and my lost mother and my father, whom I hadn't seen for many years. And eventually I went off and found my father, who was at that time living in Hastings.
Oh, so you Alcantara, by the way. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So you, um, your father, you didn't know him uh, during your childhood, madam. Not really? No, because uh, mm-hmm. it was my grandfather who brought me up, who sacrificed a lot. He was a poor man, an ex-postmaster, but he he looked after me and uh, my great aunt, and they sacrificed everything to give me an education. Because in those days, you know, there was no such thing as a free education, and all mm. the members of my family have all achieved amazing things by scholarship. We didn't come from a rich family in, in, in any Western sense of the word. Nor were we starving, you know, but we never had any money, if you see what I mean. But yes, was, you, you got by. Oh, yes. We were a South Indian Brahmin family, and it was a very collaborative way of living. So, the, you know, I mean, yes, there were servants who came and did various tasks, and uh, we helped them out in other ways. There was kind of it isn't as hierarchical and as horrible as people imagine it, it, it must have been. Mm. It was actually like a very extended family. And I was brought up with all my cousins, which is why I called them my cousin brothers and sisters. I don't just say cousins because in England people don't even know their cousins. Very true. Uh, I spent almost every summer holiday with some cousins or the other. And uh, my mother had two sisters. And uh, one lived in uh, Bombay and one lived in Dehradun and their children became my brothers and sisters. And when did you leave India? Ah, now that's another story. How did you, yeah, how did you get to leave India? That's the story. Well, you see, when I was in uh, Calcutta with my father, Mm -hmm. I started learning physics, studying physics at the Scottish Church College. And the principal, Harold Taylor, and his wife used to love doing skits from Shakespeare. And so that was when I first started acting Shakespeare with them. And I used to do a bit of Shakespeare with them and so on and so forth. And at one stage in my life, I don't know what it was, something personal happened in my life that made me say it was time to go. I just can't tell you what it was. And I took a poor lad with me, my best friend at the time, called Padmanabhan, who was a tennis player, a very nice chap. And we just, you know, I, I went, gave my blood to in College Street near Presidency College, uh, because you got a biscuit and some money in those days. And without tickets, we just got on a train and I went to Bombay. Now, don't ask me why, except I suppose I was, I was trying to find, my sister was living there at the time and my aunts, my, one of my aunts lived there, and my cousins were all there. So, so I just turned up there, and it's kind of, and I was doing a job for a while. They, they found me a job as, in a bookstore called the International Book House, and then I found myself some digs with the Mrs. Adams, and one day I was just sitting uh, in uh, the Gateway of India. I don't know if you know Bombay, which is by the... No, I'm not familiar. Well, it's by the sea. It's like the sort of Marble Arch, you know, a big kind of gateway that was mm-hmm. by the British to welcome uh, royalty. But anyway, I was sitting there one day with a, with a copy of Shakespeare in my hand, and this Englishman sidled up to me. I mean, I, I was so naive. I didn't realise he was probably gay and trying to pick me up. Uh, I was just an innocent boy, rather young. Uh, I was 14 at the time, I think, or something, or 15, or something like that, maybe a bit mm-hmm. more. And uh, he said... Uh, Hello, why are you reading Shakespeare? And I said, why ever should I not? He's my favorite, do you mind? I'm very 
sharp looking, really. Mm. And he then went into quoting some of uh, <laughs> Benedict from Much to Do About Nothing. And I finished off the quote for him. And he laughed and he said, my God, you really do know your Shakespeare, don't you? I said, yes. And I said, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a Shakespearean actor, as it happens. And we're touring and we're here in Bombay at the moment. And we've got Shashi Kapoor, who was a big uh, Bombay film star from a dynasty. Oh, yes, I remember. I know him. Very well known to us all. And mm. he's in the company. And would you like to come and meet us tomorrow? Mm. I said, yeah, sure. So I went to the next morning at eight o'clock, having spent the night by the sea and uh, thinking, well, there's a tide in the affairs of men. You never know where this is going to lead. Mm -hmm. Wherever it is, you must take the current as it serves or lose our ventures. And so I went to this hotel in, uh, in Bombay, uh, not far from the Gateway of India, around the back of the Taj Hotel. And I went there and uh, there were all these English people there. And Shashi Kapoor was there too. Um, and um, this, uh, this man said, uh, hello, I'm, I'm Jeffrey Kendall. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, uh, I hear you want to be an actor. And I said, uh, well, yes, sir. And uh, do you think you can do any Shakespeare? I said, of course, sir. He said, really? I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, do me a bit then. And I just went, tush, never tell me. I take it much unkindly that thou, Iago, who's had my purse as if the strings were thine, shouldst know of this. And he went, right. Well, funnily enough, we're doing Othello tonight. <laughs> uh, and I'm playing Othello. And my daughter, Jennifer, is going to be Desdemona. And her chap, Shashi Kapoor, who's there, as you know, the, your film star man, He's going to be playing Cassio, and my other younger daughter, Felicity, is going to be Bianca, and he introduced me to all the company, and he mm. said, how would you like to come and do Rodrigo? And I said, what, tonight? He said, yeah, tonight. I said, okay. He said, right, have you had any breakfast? I said, no, sir. Well, he said, oh, well, well you better get some. Rehearsal start at nine o'clock sharp. And uh, Oliver Cox and Ralph took me off for breakfast somewhere in the hotel. And I, I came out and um, Mrs. Kendall, who's Laura Little, the actress, came and dressed me in some robe type thing. And I mean, I never knew any of this. And she... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, we just rehearsed it a couple of times in the afternoon. And that evening we played it you know, outdoors in Bombay. And it was a great hit. And... Uh, at the end of it all, he said, right, well, you better get off home. Your family will be worried. I said, well, I, well I'm not really living with my family at the moment because, uh, you know, I'm grown up. And he laughed and he said, okay, well, I'll, uh, well, why don't you come and see me in about three or four weeks' time? And I said, yes, sir. And I went to see him and he said, well, uh, we're off to Dehradun tomorrow. Would you like to come? I said, oh, Dehradun, I know it very well. My cousin is at the Dune School. Mm. And he said, well, funnily enough, I'm going to the Dune School and we're going to be doing Twelfth Night. And I think you'd make a rather good Andrew Ekuchik. Um, if you want to come with us, you can join us. There's no money or anything, and, but don't worry, all your expenses will be taken care of and you'll be fed and watered and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah. uh, and everyone in the company seems to want you. Uh, the only thing where he said, I have to ask you one question, though. Are you gay? 
And I said, no, sir, I'm frequently melancholy. <laughs> and, and he laughed out loud and said, oh, well, it's all right then. Well, you better get here tonight with your luggage and we will go. And my luggage consisted of one jacket and one pair of jeans that I had mm. and my copy of Shakespeare and my mother's photograph. And um, so I joined them and went off to Dehradun and then toured around India for a while uh, doing uh, Shakespeare with them. And one night after I played Andrew Agee Cheek at the Bernardo's home type place in Kalimpong, um, you know, for, I'm standing outside having a cigarette and you could see five countries from where I was standing. Uh, and Mr. Kendall came up to me and he said, very well done, you're going to be a very fine actor. And there I was in my blonde wig and my, you know, blue lenses and looking, playing Andre Gucci, uh, which has the favourite line of Shakespeare in it for me, which is, I was adored once too. And it was lovely when I could make the audience stop laughing and take a gasp when I said it. So it was kind of, and he said, well, look, uh, do you want to become a member of the company? Because we're going off to, to Malaysia, you know, we're going off to Singapore. Do you want to become a full-time member of the company? I said, oh, yes, sir, of course. He said, right, well, we're off to Calcutta next. Um, but, oh, by the way, I need your passport. And I said, passport? Well, what, what's that passport? I, I, don't, I don't have a passport, sir. Yeah. And he said, well, well, don't you worry. We'll sort something out. Anyway, I'll see you in Calcutta. Uh, we've got the first three days off. Are you all right? Or, uh, do you know where you're staying? Has Oliver or Ralph or somebody fixed you up? I said, sir, my father lives in Calcutta. I'll be there in six by one commissariat road, Hastings. And he said, fine. And I went, went and stayed with my father for a bit and told him all that had been going on. And then my father said, uh, that's great. Well, but are you sure this is what you want to do? I said, yes, sir. And, uh, and then suddenly a, a motorbike arrived with a courier. And in it was a shiny new passport, my first ever passport. My goodness. And what had happened was, I didn't know this, I found this out much later, that mm. Lady Mountbatten was a, was a patron of the company. So Mr. Kendall had spoken to Lady mm. Mountbatten, who'd spoken mm. to Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, who had personally authorized my passport. So I suppose I should be thanking Nehruji. And uh, so I got a passport and the following week we took a, a ship, a French messagerie maritime boat, all the way to Singapore. And then I went around the world with them doing Shakespeare in all sorts of extraordinary places. So that's how it all started for me. My goodness. And how long did you um, stay with them for, might have? Well, it was just under two years, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, um, uh, you know, and then I came back to England. I remember that when I was in Singapore, there were rumours going around that a Labour government was going to bring in immigration rules into this country, etc., etc. And I was mm -hmm. determined that I had to get here uh, to do Shakespeare at Stratford, as I said. And yeah. uh, uh, Mr. Kendall said, are you sure you want to go? You'll be very happy here. Don't go because England will break your heart. Oh. Uh, no, no, of course it won't. But I've got to do this, you see. It's my destiny. You said that. Yes. And he said, oh, okay. Um, so he took me to where the ship docked. And he 
saw me off, giving me a last chance, saying, are you sure? I said, yes, sir. And I waved at him and he, he went off into the distance. He'd been my surrogate father for the last couple of years. And I got on the boat and after we'd been at sea for about 20 minutes, uh, um, the captain came up with an announcement saying, well, Mr. Marav Sharma, please come to the captain's office immediately, urgent. I didn't know what it was, I was quite scared, but eventually somebody found me and took me to the captain's office and he said, well, you're going to have to go back, I'm afraid. I said, why? He said, well, you haven't got a visa for France, have you? And we had a French ship and we docked at Marseille first before we go to Southampton. Mm. And uh, without the French passport, I can't let you, or without the visa for France, I can't let you on board. So the ship turned round and dropped me back exactly where I'd started. Oh, my goodness. Extraordinary. And I didn't know what to do. So I just spent a few days thinking about this, living on the streets, and finally rang Shashi Kapoor up, and uh, he saw me and he said, oh, don't worry, you can, you can earn some money here while you're here and you can sort something out. And I went to various schools and, you know, and lectured on Shakespeare and things, but I knew bugger all about it, really. But I talked to people about the use of makeup on stage, and I'd heard so many stories about Gilgood and Richardson and Wolfit and everybody from Mr. Kendall and Mrs. Kendall that I could tell them all these theatrical anecdotes, you see. And, yes. and about Irving's wig that he used for Shylock and so on and so forth. And I made a bit of money, and in the end, I was 60 rupees short for a plane ticket to come to England. And Shashi Kapoor lent me the 60 rupees, which I've never been paid, incidentally, which is very sad, because he's dead now. He died, didn't he? Yeah. Shashi gave me the 60 rupees, and I hitchhiked to the airport, and I got on a plane. And we were only allowed to bring five pounds into the country. I saw one of my sisters in Bombay. She'd given me an underground map. So I arrived at Heathrow on a very foggy early morning. I think it was 1962, it must have been, something like that. So I was 21 years old anyway. And I, mm-hmm. and I uh, you know, I came to customs and the chap was very nice. And he said, uh, welcome, sir. And uh, what are you here for? And I said, oh, I'm here to do Shakespeare at Stratford-upon-Avon. I'm an actor, you know. And he, he laughed. <laughs> he laughed and he said, Well, good luck, sir. And, uh, you know, he, and then I got on a coach that took me to Victoria Station. And there was a, you know, I'd spoken to some people on the bus and they were going somewhere else. And uh, all this went on. And I got off the bus and put, uh, found the left luggage locker that somebody told me I could put my bag in. Doesn't cost anything. Take the key, and I had to pay when I collected it. I put my little bag with my one one other jacket and another pair of jeans and various things in in it, and I went straight to Westminster Bridge, and I went straight because I wanted to see it, and I was in, in the fog, and I just thought of Wordsworth, and I was there, and then somebody came and said, "Hello, what are you doing here?" And I said, "Oh, I'm just." just from India and I had to come and see this place and I said where's the theatres and he said oh come on I'll show you and he took me to Soho and in Soho I I met Larry the Greek who was running a strip club 
in St. Anne's Court, and he offered me a job as a doorman, starting the following day. And I Hello. said, fine, I'll see you tomorrow then at 12 o'clock. I think we had to be there by midday. So I didn't know what I was going to do that night. And a girl came out of the club uh, who said, hello, I'm Pam. And I said, oh, hello, Pam. Uh, and she wore, always wore a mauve coat and had a little plastic mouse on her lapel. And she said, come on, where are you going? And I said, uh, no, I don't know yet. So we went to Bayswater and we looked at some B&Bs and I booked into one which said no dogs, no packies you know, no cooking. And since oh, I wasn't a dog and I wasn't a Pakistani and I didn't do any cooking, um, I thought I ought to book in there. Number two, Dawson Place, I remember. There was a lesbian club underneath. I remember that too. Uh, and uh, so I booked in there and Pam said, come on, I'm going to take you out to dinner. And so we went out and we had something to eat. And um, after that, Pam said, you've got to stay with me for a while. Because after a week, I couldn't afford to stay there because they, I think the rent was three guineas or something, you know, mm -hmm. at the time. And I said, okay, I'll come and stay with you then. And one day she said to me, listen, what do you do? I said, I'm an actor. I've told you. I've been around the world twice. And she said, well, you can't be an actor unless you've been to RADA. That's mm -hmm. where all the proper actors go. And I said, what's RADA? She said, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. So you better get there. Come on, I'll take you. And she took me by the hand and she took me to Dow Street. And I arrived there and the sergeant said, yes, sir, what can I do for you? And I said, I don't know. This lady says I should be here. And uh, at the very moment, John Fernald, who was then the principal, came out from downstairs somewhere to, towards his office, I think. And um, he stopped and said, yes, can I help you? I'm the principal, John Fernald. And I said, Hello, sir, I'm Madhav Sharma, I'm an actor, a Shakespearean actor. And he, 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 he smiled and he said, oh, good, 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 good. Uh, what are you doing here? And I said, I've just arrived from India and uh, I've been working with the Kendals for the last two years. I've been doing this, that and the other. And I told him all the parts I'd played, and often three and four roles in one play. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I could do the sets, I could do the lighting, I could do everything. And he said, uh, right, well, you better come and audition for us. How about Friday? I said, uh, oh, yes, uh, thank you, sir. Uh, I'll be see you on Friday at 3 o'clock, whatever the time was. And the sergeant said, well, that'll be three, I don't know what the figure was, five guineas or something was our audition fee you had to pay. And I had no money. And Pam said, no, no, I'll do that. And she paid for it. And I went on the Friday and did my audition piece. And my first piece was uh, Shylock, which was... Um, I just did him an, Im an imitation of Jeffrey Kendall playing Shylock. Mm. So I did that, and they said, fine, fine, fine. Can you come back again? I said, yes, <coughs> come back again. And then they said, right, we want you to do one other speech. And I said, yes, all right, which one do you want? They said, anyone you like. I said, oh, I don't know. Just give me a play and I'll do a speech. And they said, how about The Merchant of Venice then? Go on then. And Or The Dream, you pick. So I went, mislike me not for my complexion, the shadowed livery of the burnished sun to whom I am a neighbor and near bred. Bring me the fairest creature northward born. And you know, and they, they just loved it. They just loved it. And it was Morocco. 
And I did that, and they said, fine, you're in. So Mr. Fernald said, you're in? Now, how are you going to pay for the course? And I said, oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm working in the strip club. Oh, he said, oh, don't worry, we'll sort something out. And then I got a scholarship, and so that's how I went into Rhoda. What a story, my dad. Yes, this is nothing, I mean, this is nothing compared to some of the real stories that have happened to me over the years. I won't bore you with them, because that's partly why I'm, I'm kind of, a friend of mine called Miranda Lapworth has co-written with me um, a one-man show, which I've only done a few times so far, and we are shaping it and reshaping it, and which I want to do again, called Bharat Blighty and the Bard, about how a little South Indian Brahmin boy had his life transformed by Shakespeare. It's an incredible story, really, and it, all the characters within it, you know, that helped you along the way, and especially Pam. Everything I've done has happened because of other people. Everything in my life has been the kindness of strangers. What a wonderful, really, what a wonderful story and a wonderful sentiment that there were and are still people that are complete strangers and that can help us in so many different ways. Oh, they do, that, and often without... Yes. I've never wanted anything in return. Yes. You know, yes. You imagine nowadays that if you do something for them, it's because you want something from them. Well, I, I found in the 60s when I was here, people did things for me for no reason at all. I used to have a glass of whiskey waiting for me at the Saddle Room Club in Park Lane. Now, don't ask me why. Helen Corday used to run the club, um, who was a friend of Prince Philip's, uh, and uh, uh, it was owned, part owned by a man called Peter Davis, who used to run a thing called Subud, and I knew all about Subud because I knew a lot about theosophy. Mm. just said, oh, you must come because you're such good company. There was sort of, you know, I met people of all classes from dustmen to, you know, to, to lords and ladies, and they all treated one another the same. And I don't know who picked up the bill, but I was always fed and watered. I mean, it was just lovely. It's really like, you know, a film, listening to you and listening to these stories. It's, it I is like a film. It's like a fairy story. Yes. And I have yeah. to concentrate and get it absolutely right, which I sometimes do. It's what I'm improvising, like I'm doing now. I'm just going for some highlights. But my one-man show, I go into all the details and things and why, what, and how. Only I want to change it slightly, and so does Miranda. And so we're going to work on a new script, because I've already done it at Winchester and at the Indian High Commission and uh, two or three other places in this country. I took it to India, uh, went to the Scottish Church College. There again, everybody said, you can't get the money for this. You can't do this. It's, you know, um, because it was Shakespeare's birthday in April the 23rd, and it was now January or something. And I said, oh, don't worry, something will happen. And indeed, something did happen. I went to a, something I was invited to, some bizarre thing, and I went there and sat next to this lady who talked to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to India next week. And she said, oh, really? I said, yes, for the first time in the donkey's years. And I'm going with my one-man play about Shakespeare. She said, really? I said, yes, look, here's my program, which I just had printed, or rather Miranda just had printed for me, in, the, in oh. near where she lived in Cocking, in, in Sussex. And um, she read it and, uh, you know, said nothing to me. And later, at the end of the evening, I noticed that everybody was talking to this man, whom I was now, it was my turn, I was next to him. And he said, uh, hello. 
And I said, hello. And you know, I said, who are you? And he said, uh, you seem to be very important. Everybody seems to want to talk to you. And he laughed and he said, no, I'm just the, the British head of Tata, you know, Indian company. I said, oh, Tata. Yes. I mean, the philanthropists, the people who own everything. He yes. Said, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. He said, now listen, my wife tells me that you're going to India with a one-man show. Would you like some money? I said, uh, uh, but, <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, of course. Whatever you can spare, because we're just... Why not? I'm just scrabbling. And mm. uh, Lady Sainsbury just giving me a thousand pounds the day before, because I'd run into her in Charing Cross Road, because I'd met her at Stratford, and so on. And then he, he said, okay. And the following morning, he rang me, and a cheque duly arrived for several thousand pounds. Oh, my goodness. The, the British Council paid for my, my uh, train tickets. So it was all kind of done and dusted. And I went and did a few. I only spent three weeks in India. And I just went to my college in uh, there and my school in Bangalore and so on. And it was lovely. And then I came back, and uh, since then I've just been busy working in other things here. But always at the back of my mind is that is what I want to say to the world. And people have made all kinds of suggestions. It should be done by somebody younger. Let's make a film of it. Let's do this. Let's do that. People have tried to plagiarize it. But they'll never get it right because I'm the one who knows the truth of what happened to all those people and some of them are still alive. Yes, you're the only one who holds that secret in what happened there. I want to share that secret with everybody else, you see. Mm. um, That will be my legacy, if you like. So to do that, I have to rewrite the script. I've got to, because it had too much of me showing off with Shakespeare in the middle and not very well, I might add, because we never rehearsed it enough, because we never had enough money to put time for rehearsals and all that kind of thing. But... um, we're going to do it, Miranda and I, and, um, and I'm sure it'll be a great success and you'll have to come. It will do. I will do, madam, for sure. And when are you hoping uh, to do that? Oh, not till next year sometime, I should imagine, because I've mm. with the COVID thing and et cetera. It's actually a great opportunity to try out new things. And one-man shows are not very expensive to put on, you know? Mm. Mm. And... Uh, now that I'm so old and, uh, you know, before I go, that's something I need to do. I'm really, you know, your spirit is so effervescent, I have to say. And what I love about you is that I know it's not only because you're an actor, but it is really your personality, is that there is this great showman there, but also this love of life. Oh, and you see, everything in life that has happened to me has worked out miraculously to my advantage. Times when yes. I've been desperately down and thinking, oh, mm. God, everybody hates me and indulging in the worst kind of self-pity. Something always comes to rescue me. Whether that's my mama or who it is, I've no idea. Whether it's mm. God, whoever that may be, I have no idea. All I know is that I, I try to be as honest as I can in every moment, which means most people never believe me because people only believe you when you tell them lies or tell them what they want to hear. Very true, very true. When you tell them the plain unvarnished truth, they assume you're saying something else, especially 
you know, in countries like India and England, where everybody talks in code, and it all depends on your class as to what you really mean. Whereas I'm very literally, somebody says to me on holiday or when I'm, when I'm filming the regiment in Cyprus, and somebody said, oh, you must come for lunch. I took them at their word and rang them up. They were most surprised, poor things. Well, I mean, I just think people should learn to be themselves and just tell the truth, you know, as much as you can. But well, that's, that's a, yeah, it's a rarity, isn't it, these days? Yes, but these days one has to be careful because everyone imagines that everybody else is out to get them. And I've got a particular fascination with women because of my mother, because I was brought up with my sisters, because I have no family, and all my life I've wanted a daughter or a granddaughter, you see. Uh-huh. I've been lucky in that, that respect. I was married once, but that was quite briefly, and it ended badly. So there we go. So it wasn't for me. So I tend to kind of adopt people and try to kind of help them. And they're always so suspicious. They think, what's he after? Does he, you know, does he want to sleep with me or something? Is he a dirty old man? And you think, what a life you must lead. If you're going to spend, if I spent my entire day worrying about the statistics about road accidents, I would never cross the road. Mm, mm. Life is about carpe diem, seize the day, take the moment, be who you are. You will make mistakes, things will go wrong, and be grateful that you've been given this amazing gift called life. And it's not all in your control. In fact, very little is. But what is in your control is you can be true to yourself. To thine own self be true, and this above all else. And as long as you can look inward and be honest with yourself, then I think life is a bowl of cherries. <laughs> you see what I mean? I love it. I, you know, I love what you say, and I love you know, this optimistic, uh, really this spirit of optimism within you, um, Madhav, because it's something that for many years now, and especially in this day and age, it, there is a lack of it. And it, in a way, I, I find that people are actually, because we were talking about this, weren't we, earlier on, about the concept of fear, mm-hmm. and that there are so many things we miss out on in life because we are afraid. Exactly. Exactly. I was like that about washing up, would you believe? Were you really? Yeah, I couldn't do it because I just thought it was beneath me somehow, deep down in my subconscious. Because a Brabant boy's job is to read and to teach and to educate and that sort of thing. And Mm. so I thought that somebody else would do that. Till um, I mean, I have to say my ex-wife made me do that once and I'm ever grateful to her for that. Um, She said, well, why do you always... You know, hold your nose up when you when I ask you to wash up. I said, well, it's not a very pleasant thing to do, is it? She said, why not? Look at the clean, look at the gleam of, the, of this lovely bit of uh, crockery. Mm. And then I started enjoying it. I still don't do it often enough because I don't look after myself very well. But when I do, I really enjoy it. So it goes to show that you have to continually challenge yourself, I think. You have to do yes. things that you thought you weren't capable of. And you may not be very good at it to begin with. And you've got to persevere and you've got to keep at it. And you've got to work hard. And in it is the reward, the satisfaction of knowing that you're doing the best you can at any given moment. That's all you can do. Absolutely. It's 
really down to us. There's so much and, division, isn't there, in this world? Yes. You know, with the political yeah. dogmas and people who like to keep you, as somebody said, <laughs> I read an article the other day by somebody who said, you know, now everybody is fighting for trans rights, which is a very good thing. But some of the people who are supporting it are doing it because they need to support something. They always need to be attacking something. They need to be attacking the establishment one way or another. Because that's their living now, you know? That's a sad, that's very, very sad. sad. Because the reality yeah. is, of course, we all need help. Mm. And we should all be looking after each other. And all prejudice is just that, prejudice. We should discard it. We should learn to love one another, irrespective of race, creed, color, sex, all that, gender, all those kinds of things. But, you see, there are different ways of doing it. And I just think you could either do it the adversarial way where you fight and fight and fight and you think eventually we achieve something because weren't the suffragists wonderful and we make them into heroines when they didn't want working class women to have the vote. They didn't have any women of color to have the vote. But we make them into saints now because everything is either you're a god or you're a demon instead of accepting that we're all flawed, that we all make mistakes. And that, but we all also have the divine in us, what I call the divine, something larger than ourselves. And once you've tapped into that, there's nothing else to do but to just be and to enjoy and to be grateful and to look around. I mean, I'm just looking at my garden as I'm speaking to you. And, and you know, there's a copper beech that I planted in memory of a neighbor who lived opposite me. I first met him when I moved to this village 40 years ago or so, and uh, he and I were the only two who ever read The Guardian. That's how we became friends. Oh. And when he died, I didn't know what to do, so I, I planted this tree in his memory. And every time I look at it, I think of Harold, Harold and Audrey. Audrey always did the sun because she found the crossword easier. <laughs> so you see, I, it's, it's about you, you could either choose to be happy or you could choose to be miserable. This is not to say that there isn't injustice. This is not to say that there isn't racism and sexism and unfairness everywhere, and we should do up. But I personally think if you start with yourself and the way you lead your life, no matter how, what anybody else says, eventually that ripple will grow and grow and grow. And that's the way to change the world. If you try and impose on it a dogma or a principle or a, some leader's view or something, you know, you'll always find something wrong with it or it'll change with time or circumstances will change or something will happen. So why not look inside? And I spend a lot of time sitting quietly on my own. Well, meditating is too, uh, too formal a word for it. I just daydream, if you like. I stop and I evaluate what I'm doing that day for myself. Very selfish, I know. I think, oh, but that would be nice. Oh, it's a lovely day. Why don't I go to the seaside? I'll ring up a neighbor and get in the car and we can go off to, you know. Yes, and enjoy that moment. Enjoy that moment. Mm. Yes, there are hundreds of things I should be doing, which I'm not doing, rather than talk to you, but I'm having such fun talking to you. Because I don't often talk to many people when I'm here, because I live a hermit's life, really. Partly because I'm, I'm not very well off, so I'm, although I'm better off now than I've been for a very long time, thank God, thank you to my agent, and so on. 
but um, at the end of the day, it's not about material comfort, I find. There are things you feel when I go for a walk, you know, in David Midwood's uh, forest nearby, there's a little wood clearing, and I walk there and you see the animals and you see the birds and you, oh, it's just like you feel part of something that is difficult to explain. You feel part of that, that womb, which is also your tomb, the earth, if you like. Whatever it is, mother, whatever you want, whatever metaphor you want to use. Mm. And when you feel that, you feel, I feel free. I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound preachy. I, I'm not one of those people. I, I don't no, please continue. It's fascinating. And um, I'm very, very sure that people will really relate to that because it's something that is so needed now. And I heard this. Uh, it was another guest actually um, that we had on, you know, the podcast and um, he spoke about gardens, like you're saying, and he said, we come from earth and we go back to earth and in between there are gardens. And I thought that's absolutely how life is. And especially during this lockdown, I have been so much in the garden, Madav, that I've created this sort of crazy jungle type with flowers and shrubs and all sorts of things. Mine has uh, flowers in it too. Yes. Somebody said, some, some neighbour said to me, oh, you ought to cut down those weeds. I said, what weeds? He said, those yellow things. I said, they're dandelions. And they're my favourites. Yes, exactly. Said, they're weeds. Take them out. I said, you think they're weeds. I think they're beautiful. Do you mind? It's my garden and they're going to stay there. Absolutely, absolutely. I had a, I had a weed. I had a weed that flowered. Yes. It became very tall, and it had flowers. And I suddenly thought to myself, everything wants to be beautiful, even the weed. You know, it's flowered. I can't get rid of that weed now that it has its flowers there. And everyone laughed at me because it was about three meters high. But I thought it's enjoying this moment of living. Yeah. I mean, I've got a minute garden, it's only about a third of an acre, but at the bottom of it is a field, you see. Mm. And the man who owned the field said in his will that it should never be built on. So his widow is keeping to that promise, although I don't know how long she'll be able to hold out. So she's planted it with wild flowers at the moment. Oh, that's wonderful. With a grant to just put the wild flowers in for the environment, because fields need to rest in between crops, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's what she's done. It's so beautiful. But of course, her children will probably want her to sell it so they can have the money and they can fix all the houses and make a lot of money out of it. That's the trouble with living in a village which now has a, a swimming pool and a village hall and a village shop and a petrol station and a post office. In this tiny village, we're becoming suburbanized, you see. So nobody yes. goes to school anymore because. All the people who sold their houses, fortunes in the east of London, have arrived into our village wearing their brand new green wellies and their brand new barbers and driving the 200 yards it is to the school instead of letting the children have some fresh air. Mm, mm, They're mm. worried about pedos. Well, that's another story for another day. Yes, I mean, if you keep looking, 
evil in people, you'll always find it. Well, you know, it's a, I think it's a matter of being in balance. And um, we all know that evil and badness exists. And somehow we must try to protect us and the vulnerable amongst us. But there's also, and that's, there's no denying that. And there's no denying it's on an increase. But there is also the beauty of life. And I think if we were to give as much energy into doing beautiful things and enjoying moments, like you said, getting in you know, the car with your neighbor and going to the seaside, um, instead of worrying about all the things that we can't change, but actually change the things that we can and spend more time changing those things. Well, that's what the desiderata prayer is about, isn't it? Yes. You know, and once you can, you can, if you change yourself, you can change the world. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing that people don't realize. We, we rely mm. on other things to ch- affect the change for us. And we like the battle and the warrior, which is encouraged by people who are making money out of us or people who want to keep the population under some kind of control, you know. And it's wrong. I, I mean, I just feel there is another way based on love and based on, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that one can never have nasty things because there will be nasty things. But it's the way you deal with them. And innocence is its own protection. Goodness is its own shield. You know, I've never found overt racism really directed directly at me. I know it exists because when people say something to me, I laugh with them and I just kind of joke with them and they soon go, oh, you're all right, mate. They might be truly racist underneath, but or think they are, or be told that they are, you know, but they're not. I mean, I know some people in my village who, who I think you would classify, or many people would classify as, oh, the unwashed, ill-educated people, but they're really the salt of the earth. And I can meet them in the pub and have a pint with them as, as happily as I can meet my dear friend Robert, who recently died, who was a stockbroker. And who was very kind to me, although he was a Tory, so he was supposed to be scum, but he was very kind to me. He saved my cottage for me. So you yes, see, I remember you telling me. So there's kindness everywhere if you allow it to happen. I never ask for these things. I think the mistake one makes when one is young is you think you can either ask and plead your way into things, or you get angry and demand your way into things. As you get older, at least I've found that things either come your way or they don't come your way. You have to cultivate a form of detachment. That doesn't mean you don't feel passionately about wanting to do something or not wanting to do something. But you have to have the detachment to have the discernment to decide whether you want to do it or not. And that is the one power you have is your own action. So that's what yes. I try and live by, you know. Yes, and I'm, I'm always thinking um, something I've always thought of even as, a, even as a child, which is maybe I was a strange child also, as you say about yourself. But for me, my um, motto in life has always been, 
is to be free and to allow others to be themselves around me. I don't want to change anything. I want you to be as you are, but to be as you really are. And one of the greatest prisons of this time, I believe, Madhav, is that this fear imprisons us. What is this person thinking? What is that person thinking? Whether it be government or authority, whatever it is that's trying to keep us prisoner. But it actually is our own ego. Yes. Wouldn't it be nice if people stopped telling everybody else how to live and actually yeah. that their own lives were changed? Well, if they led by example, this is the thing. You know, you can make someone do something by force and they'll do it. But if you, if you lead by example and you do it with love, that actually can change that person to be the best that they can be. It is a declaration and a reflection of love. It's not by um, forcing someone or oppressing someone to do something or, you know, rules that are imposed, but love dissolves all rules, I think. I think it does. And when you give people respect, it's amazing. And you listen to them. I mean, the first time in my local pub, I met a local chap who'd been with the National Front, you know, quite a mm -hmm. racist, right-wing organization, I'm told. Uh, and he... Uh, he had a reputation for being very white suddenly and all that. And I just talked to him like I would to anybody else. And uh, we became friends. Later I found out he'd been with the National Front. He'd even been to prison for racism. And yet, yeah. when somebody from another village had done something to my car or something, he came out to fight for me. He said, we're not going to allow that. Madame's one of us. Now. That changed. I didn't ask him to change. I didn't say anything. And he's a lovely man. As it happens, he's married to a gypsy woman who's almost as dark as I am. And he's written some nice books about the village now. But I, you see, I don't judge people. I don't say, oh, he's racist. She's working class. He's this. He's that. She's a sexist. He's, you know, all you do is you confirm them in their position. And I think you can't change anybody else, but they can change themselves if you give them the chance. And the first yes. chance you can give them is to listen to them and to say, I disagree politely, but that's it. You know, you think about it and they will find their own truth. Sooner or later, they will. That is my belief anyway. Yes, I mean, if we can give them a door, yeah. To be transformed to their best, to their higher them, being. They walk through that door or not. Yeah. Yeah. But it also gives us a door. It's my business that happened when we, you know, first stopped making suicide a criminal offense in this country. Do you remember? No, I don't. Well, you see, I was trained for a while as a Samaritan by the Reverend Chad Vara, who was a mm -hmm. Samaritan. He had a church in the city, St. Stephen's where I did my training and so on. And he fought very hard for it to be decriminalized because he said, if you take all power away from people, even if you're doing it for their good, you don't actually solve the problem. 
to solve the problem, what you do is give them the power to solve the problem. For example, give us an example with well, that. Well, say somebody rings you up while you're on duty mm-hmm. of the Samaritans and says, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, as somebody once did to me, uh, you know, at, at night, at the end of the news and everything, it's the last thing at night when I say good night to you, that's MI5 sending me a, a signal. Now, you may think that person is balmy. You might say, oh, don't be silly, pull yourself together. You might say, no, that's not the case. I'm afraid you're mistaken. You can do all those things, but that isn't going to change his belief. He believes what he believes. So all you can say is listen and go, oh, really? I didn't know that. Mm. Just be empathetic with them, not agreeing with them, but being empathetic to their situation and saying, I've never had that experience, but then nobody's ever wanted to speak to me from MI, whatever it is. And after a while, he said, you know, after several sessions, he one day said to me, do you think I need some help? I said, oh, I don't know. I think we all need help, don't we? He said, do you know of any, anywhere I could go to talk about my obsessions and things and maybe some psychiatrist or somebody or somebody who knows about these things? I said, I can find out for you. And I did, and I gave him a list of places that would see him. And he said, oh, well, that's going to cost a fortune. I said, no, no, that's for free. We'll ring them and tell them that you're coming. And he went, oh, thank you. And years later, I met the man. I didn't even know he was him because I'd never seen him before. And he said, yeah. I don't know who I am, but I know you because I can recognize you from your voice and your manner. He said, you helped me out once very badly when I was a young man. And I said, really? He said, well, you were very young too, but you totally understood my despair. And that my problem wasn't what it seemed to be. My problem was that nobody loved me. Or I thought nobody loved me. Oh, dear. Isn't that extraordinary? Yes. So you see, I mean... Humility is a virtue that we all need to cultivate. I've been very guilty of being very arrogant and opinionated at times. As I say, we all make mistakes, but, and I'm sure there are many roads to Mecca, so to speak. uh, Do you you think, Madhav, one of the main things that sadden the heart are that we all feel somewhere in the recesses of our heart that we're not good enough to be loved. Yes, we think we're not worthy. Mm, mm. It's because we haven't learned to forgive ourselves. You see, even if you accept the concept of original sin, if you're a Catholic, say, or whatever, yeah. we're consumed with guilt about everything. And therefore, try, I mean, all the Catholic girls I've, I've ever known have all gone wham the other way. As a rebellion against that. But once you say, yes, I've made mistakes. Yes, that was wrong of me. Once you learn to say sorry, once you apologize, it's extraordinary how free you feel. It is extraordinary. It's only pride and ego and everything else that stops you. Some people can never say it, but they let you know in subtle ways that they are sorry about something, you know? 
the art of forgiveness, I think there's a lot to be said for that in that they say that, I've read this, I don't know whether you've also read about these things, but one of the, which is extraordinary, I think, when you think about this is that when you hate something or someone, it actually binds you to them more as opposed to forgiving them and letting them go. Because that, in fact, cuts all ties with them. And it sets them on their way. And energetically, you know, on a soul level, you know, we all have these um, cords that run between us as mankind. And forgiveness is a very difficult thing, especially because we find it, I think, sometimes very hard to forgive ourselves. But you see, it's a very odd thing, this business about letting go and the Mm. thin lines between control, controlling somebody and protecting them, the thin lines between uh, letting go and being uncaring. The thing is, the opposite of love is not hate, it's actually disinterest. And you've moved on completely. And you've moved on. If you haven't moved on completely, you haven't moved on, really. Mm. You know, and it's a good thing sometimes not to move on, as long as you can both accept that. See, my ex-wife and I had a very turbulent divorce, for example, and we didn't speak to each other for years and years and years. She's now a friend, but we both know the limits of that friendship. And we both, neither of us has said sorry to the other, but I have, by contacting her, accepted my share of the blame, and she has, by contacting me, accepted her share of the blame. You see? Yes, yeah. It doesn't really matter anymore. What matters is that we can be civil to each other and kind to each other. And that's all that matters in life. Ultimately, yes. It's not even about being right or wrong. It's about Mm. being kind. And you feel better. I feel better if I'm kind to somebody, you know? Sure. I mean, it's, it's the sense of, you know, giving, they say, is really a glimpse of heaven. If you really give from yourself, truly, it, yeah. it doesn't have to be material, no. but it can, you can really sense that moment of heaven within. I would have to add one other thing to it. You should give without expectation of the return. Yes. Or reward. And that's the hard bit. Most of us will give as long as we recognize it. I'll give to charity as long as my name appears in the list of the worthies who contributed to this cause, you know? Mm. That's Mm. not giving. True giving is is something that's just there. You don't need to shout about it. You don't need to talk about it. The person, the receiver, and the giver are united by the act of charity, by the act of goodness between them the act of righteousness between them, as the Jews would say. You know, yes. it, it, it depends. But I honestly do think that, you know, nothing happens on its own. And every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that's true. And it takes a lot of wisdom and courage to own up, to go past the ego, Mm. Apologize genuinely. 
I mean, I feel so sorry for some of the things I've done in my life. They were all done with good intentions. But then the way to hell is often paid with good intentions. They yes. say. So they say, yes. So you see, it's a different, I, I, I can't pretend I have any answers, Mimi. I'm no sage. All I can say is it's a way of life that makes me feel happier and makes me feel more content. I probably still make as many enemies as I used to because I'm very straightforward in what I say. And people often misunderstand because people think you've said something and that isn't what you've said at all. I choose my words with some care and people don't. They get the general gist of things, particularly with emails and things. You know, they never read them properly. Whereas I've spent hours worrying about exactly what I've written, you know? Yeah, yeah. They can be misinterpreted, and they certainly are in a lot of um, Of cases. And that's what law is all about, isn't it? Interpretation of words. Yes, absolutely. Where we belong. Language is where we start, and language, you know, I mean, a friend of mine, a writer called Jill Crawford, has written an essay on language. It's just turned my world upside down when I read it, you know? I'll send it What's the name of the book? It's not a book, it's just an essay. Oh, it's just an essay. Yeah. On language. It was published on an online magazine. I'll send it to you. Send it to me, yes. That would be very interesting. Because it had such an effect on me. Because it said, partly because it said everything that I believed, of course, which is always comforting. But partly because I think this kind of torment, inner torment, is within us all. And if we're not careful, we get addicted to that torment, you know? Mm -hmm. And we're frightened of being genuinely content. Because we think I'll be content if I get another car, another house, another job, another dress, another whatever it might be. And all that happens is when you get one of those, you want the next one. And what you have to realize in the end, therefore, is that is not you. Therefore, you have to ask yourself, what do you really want? What, what sort of a person do you really want to be? How do you want people to remember you? But more importantly, how do you want to remember you? And that's, you know, it's, it's very, I know it's a bit self-centered to say this, but I do think to thine own self be true is the answer. I don't, I don't think it's selfish in any way. And I believe that is where actually the treasure really is, mm. is that we are searching beyond ourselves. But the answer, as I said at the beginning, and I really believe this, is within ourselves. And people say to me, yes, but, you know, how can you find yourself? And, you know, I'm trying to be this person. I'm trying to be that person. And I said, but that's not the issue. The issue is for you to find what gives you peace. And usually what gives you peace is what is right for you. But it's difficult. It's a difficult road. It's much easier to pontificate about as I'm doing rather than actually following my own instructions, you know? (laughs) Yes, I mean, but we're trying, you know. I remember that bit in the message of Venice, if to do what is easiest to know what were good to be done, then chapels have been churches and poor men's cottages, princes' palaces. (laughs) I could easier teach 20 what were good to be done rather than be one of the 20 to follow my own teaching. Yes. You see, I think... he knew it all, didn't he? Oh. Yes, 
Yeah, yeah. But it's your it's your washing up story that's interesting for me also. <laughs> in that <laughs> we I yeah. have to tell you this well, story. I was let <laughs> down, you know, Mimi. I frequently still revert to old habits and old oh, old mistakes and I pull myself up and I beat myself up and I go, oh for God's sake, you're always saying this, but you're doing the opposite. <laughs> and I have to help eat humble pie and retrace my steps and say, yes, you're right about that, but I still think I'm right about this or not. <laughs> Sometimes you don't need to say that. Why do we always have to reiterate how wonderful we are? You don't have to. Sometimes well, we are wonderful, I have to say. You know, yeah. the, the, there is the acceptance, as you said, of the divine, which is glorious. Yeah. And if we were to, um, I was actually talking to somebody today and we were talking about um, early this morning, funny enough, a friend of mine, and she loves to use this Photoshop thing where she changes the way she looks all the time. Okay. And I said to her, but I know what you look like. And she said, well, I know you do. Because she said, do you like my new um, profile photograph on WhatsApp? And I said, but I know what you look like. She said, I know you do. And I said, but you don't look like that. She said, no, but do you like what I look like? I said, but that's not you. <laughs> and she said, yes, I know it's not me, but do you like it? I said, well, who's that? And she said, well, I don't know, actually. <laughs> so we had this whole thing about her WhatsApp photograph, which she changes about 50 times a day, which I really don't know why. And I said, well, why don't you just look like yourself? And she said, well, I don't, I don't like all the time. Do they? Yes, because they, they keep thinking if they sell themselves in a certain way, they'll get the mm. job. Then the moment, yes, I understand that. Yes. And then the moment they get the job, they start complaining because, of course, the director wants something else. They've got the job for a reason they don't like. Yes, yes, yes. That often happens. Well... Actually, that's also, I was talking to um, a friend of mine who's a relationship, he's a psychotherapist, and um, he said to me, that's actually with relationships as well, because you go in and a lot of people pretend they're something in order to impress the other person, but sort of six months down the line, that's not actually who they are. Um, and I think that's where the problem occurs when you're not really being who you are because what's the point of being anyone else well you see expectations can be killers this is very true yes the best mm. thing is not to expect anything that doesn't mean being pessimistic it means being optimistic but saying what will be will be yeah whatever it'll be i'm going to enjoy it hey sarah sarah yeah I, my grandfather, and I always think of this, and he would say this always to me as a child, and he was much a much older grandparent. So, you know, he was sort of in his 70s um, when I was born. Well, actually, I think he was 80. Um, so he said to me, don't expect anything from anyone and you will never be disappointed. And as a child... I didn't understand it. And he, up to my teenage years, you know, up until he died, really, I was only a teenager. He would say this to me every week because I would come to him and I got on with him really well. 
and he would, I would say, well, this person's upset me and this person's upset me and this has upset me and, you know, being a sensitive soul. And he said, don't expect anything. And I would have these conversations with him. What do you mean don't expect anything? And I'd have to understand it. And it's only really recently, Madhav, in the past few years that I semi-understood it. Um, And because it saves a lot of heartache. Who was it who once said it takes a very clever mind to miss a very simple point? Um, Excellent point, yes. Thank you so much, Madhav, really, for coming today. Truly, it's been a fountain of knowledge and inspiration and your words of wisdom. And I'm sure that we can all benefit from such words of wisdom at all times in our life. And as we come to the close of the episode, I just want to ask you something that I ask all my guests is if there was one piece of advice that you could give to people out there that has helped you in your life, what would it be? I think it would have to be this above all, to thine own self be true. And then let's not be false to any man. I mean, that's, to me, it's about finding yourself and being true to yourself, forgiving yourself, being honest with yourself, and just being rather than imposing external factors into your relationships, into your work and everything else. Just be you, because you are magnificent. Beautiful, simply beautiful. And I hope that one day all of us can incorporate that jewel of wisdom into our life. I sincerely hope so. Thank you for coming, really, Madhav. Thank you very much for having me. But I'm no guru or anything. You know, I'm just telling you my feelings. It's important to hear stories of people and their lives, especially people that have had such interesting and a life full of extraordinary moments such as yours. So I'm very grateful for you joining me today. You're welcome. And Madhav, if people would like to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, the best way is probably to go to www.madhavsharma.com Mm-hmm. And email me from there because you go, or you can email me directly by madhav at madhavsharma.com. Okay, so they can either go to your website and contact you that way or they can do it via email. Wonderful. Thank you again, and lots of greetings and love to that beautiful place where you live. And I hope you're going to do something lovely today for the rest of the day. Thank you, and I hope you do too. Have a beautiful day. Thank you, Madhav. Take care and speak soon. Bye. 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 Madhav Sharma, what an extraordinary life story and really a huge story about destiny and how destiny always finds the way. 
Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, look after yourselves and lots of love. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life, brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music, and inspirational work, take a look at her website, www.miminovic.co.uk.